Are you looking for a trusted property insurance partner to help your business grow and stay resilient? FM Global uses science, data, and research to help you make informed decisions. By working together, FM Global can help you grow your company with confidence and deliver the protection and expertise you need to thrive. We're also here to help you navigate the complex world of ESG. We'll work with you to identify and mitigate risks related to natural disasters and offer solutions that contribute to a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper. Hollywood is. They make shit. Unbelievable, unremarkable shit. Now, I'm not some grungy wannabe filmmaker that's searching for existentialism through a haze of bong smoke or something. No, it's easy to pick apart bad acting, short-sighted directing, and the purely moronic stringing together of words that many of the studios term as prose. No, I'm talking about the lack of realism. Realism. Not a pervasive element in today's modern American cinematic vision. Take Dog Day Afternoon, for example. Arguably Pacino's best work. Short of Scarface and Godfather Part One, of course. Masterpiece of directing, easily Lamette's best. The cinematography, the acting, the screenplay, all top-notch. But they didn't push the envelope. Now, what if in Dog Day, Sonny wanted to get away with it? Really wanted to get away with it? What if? Now, this is the tricky part. What if he started killing hostages right away? No mercy, no quarter. Meet our demands. Are the pretty blonde and the bell bottoms gets it in the back of the head? Bam, splat. What? Still no bus? Come on. How many innocent victims splattered across the window would it take? to have the city reverse its policy on hostage situations. And this is 1976. There's no CNN. There's no CNBC. There's no, there's no internet. Now, fast forward to today, present time, same situation. How quickly would the modern media make a frenzy over this? In a matter of hours, it would be the, the biggest story from Boston to Budapest. 10 hostages die. 20, 30, relentless, bam, bim, one after another. All caught in high def, computer enhanced, color corrected. You practically taste the brain matter. All for what? A bus? A plane? A couple of million dollars that's federally insured? I don't think so, but just a thought. I mean, it's not within the realm of conventional cinema, but. What if? Well, there's a problem with that movie. Really? It wouldn't work. How come? Audiences love happy endings. Pacino escapes with the money. Boyfriend gets a sex change. Live happily ever after. No? No. Ah, homophobia. 
bad guy can't win. It's a morality tale. One way or the other, he's got to go down. Hmm. Well, life is stranger than fiction sometimes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, ladies and gentlemen, on this pale blue dot that we all live on. My name is Adamantium, you're the audience, and you're listening to AAU TZM Podcasts. I'd like to thank you all for clicking in, as it were, and listening. Uh, the uh, intro clip that you just heard was uh, it was one of the, the opening scene from the film Swordfish, uh, starring uh, John Travolta and Hugh Jackman. And uh, I thought it would be, you know, a uh, an interesting uh, sort of introduction to the to the show because, as uh, you can tell from the title today, I'm talking about morality tales in uh, movies and TV. And uh, even though I have come up with uh, uh, with some, I've got some extensive lists that I'm uh, uh, notes, sorry, that I'm going to be going through. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be going through uh, some of those. But I just thought that would be a uh, an interesting way to uh, to start the show off. But uh, just the usual announcement for those of you listening to this on YouTube. My podcasts also exist on TalkShoe.com. Down below in the video description, you'll find a link to the call series, as it's called. And there you can download and listen to the full podcast uh, for free in MP3 format. So for those of you who don't want to watch through 30-minute videos that I upload on YouTube, you can do that there. Um, and the usual plug um, is for the Zeitgeist Movement Defined. Uh, essentially what this is, is uh, if you really want to know exactly what the Zeitgeist Movement ad- advocates, what the train of thought is, all, all of that great stuff, if you want to know what it is, this is the book that you got to read. It's basically just an, an essay form, just a, a book <clears throat> that goes through extensively and basically describes every single facet of the train of thought that, uh, well, the moniker of the Zeitgeist movement, as it were. Um, so that's the train of thought that we advocate. Uh, so if you want to find that, go to www.thezeitgeistmovement.com forward slash orientation and there you can find ways to get hold of it. If you want a physical copy of the book, then you can get it from, uh, I think there's links there for Amazon and Lulu.com. I don't know, I haven't checked the site in a while. There might be more, there might be less, I don't know. Uh, but I know that there's also, if you want to just have a PDF of it that you can uh, download onto your tablet devices or whatever, you can download a PDF of it for free. Uh, I mean, I myself, uh, I've got my own physical copy that I bought at a Z-Day event in London. Just cost me five quid. And it's a pretty damn good book. Um, but yeah, there's that. Um, personal announcement. Yes, uh, Chapter 3 Threshold still isn't done. I am really sorry about this. Uh, I've been procrastinating a lot on that and because uh, I've been, you know, supercharged with other projects that I've that I haven't even started yet and already I'm writing scripts for um <laughs> but that will be uh re- that will be uh you know served up in the future um but yeah I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel as it were with uh, with threshold and I'll have that out ASAP um another like zeitgeist movement uh, announcement uh, for those of you who know that uh, next month is uh, generally the uh, generally agreed to be like the simultaneous uh, Zeitgeist Day events, uh, where events are held all over the 
all over the world in as many cities as possible and uh, hopefully like more or less it's more or less around the second week of march um this uh this year uh the main event uh where peter joseph will be speaking and uh um a lot of them the main speakers uh that will be held in berlin in germany on uh saturday the 14th of march at the forum factory wherever that is i'm not familiar with germany um but one thing that uh, you got to think is is there a z day event near you you know i mean i myself i i started the maidstone chapter and i've hosted a uh, couple of events down there um if you're living in the uh, in the southeast then why not get in touch with me you know see if we can get get together throw some ideas around um but um but yeah the uh, the idea is uh, to host as many events as possible in as many places as possible so at least then we can start you know gaining some exposure from the mainstream you know we can coalesce and uh, you know not coalesce that's not the word I was thinking of uh, cooperate sorry and um, and collaborate sorry and uh, just to like bring some ideas forward but uh, for those of you who don't know what z-day is and have no idea what the hell i'm talking about here uh z-day is basically our sort of like a conference uh sort of thing where we hope uh, where we host events and we get like you know have speakers um we like even do like short screenings uh q and a um basically all that uh, all that fun intellectual stuff um but yeah, as I said, uh, the main event is going to be in uh, Berlin, Germany on Saturday 14th of March at the Forum Factory. Um, but if you want to find out more about that and uh, if there is one near you, uh, then go to www.zdayglobal.org and there there's a map that you can, just like a Google Maps sort of thing, that you can zoom in on. And, uh, you know, basically any events that are basically verified and because so, basically if you can submit your own events there as well and the people that submit their events it basically goes through that that process and then the details are put up on the map uh, once they're sort of like official events um but yeah that's uh, that's basically the idea for that and uh, if if you have a look there if there's no no event near you think about hosting one yourself tell you what you could host one in your living room if you have a living room big enough <laughs> you know but even even if it's just a seat maybe i don't know 10 people i'm sure there are some people who like live in like you know the little nooks and crannies of the uk even that can that have like a big enough living room to seat 10 people and there could be one person giving a talk or just watching a talk right <laughs> That's one thing you could possibly do for a Z Day event. If you if you if you can't give a talk, then sit down and watch something. But then again, you don't have to wait for Z Day to do that. Um, but anyway, go to www.zdayglobal.org. Um, have a look on the map. See if there, there's like videos of uh, prior events there as well. So you can look up all that information there. Um, but yeah. If there isn't one near you, why not create one? Um, one uh, podcast announcement. This is the uh, last of the the initial announcements. Um, the next episode in March, um, I'm going to be having a chat 
with well hopefully having a chat with a uh, a nice gentleman um <laughs> whose name i won't give out just yet because uh you know the the exact time of the uh, the interview um that we're going to be doing over skype isn't completely verified i think it's just a day that we've decided because i've been chatting to one of his uh, one of his assistants um but yeah that's uh, that's going to be hopefully happening next podcast who it is well i can't say just yet uh so keep um keep your ear to the ground for that um but Anyway, it is, however, my unfortunate task to inform you that Busy Bees is now no longer our sponsor since the service um, itself uh, actually got piggybacked uh, by another money-making endeavour. Uh, <laughs> essentially what happened is that one of the drones was captured and reprogrammed to ignore certain protocols and do other things when not executing commands from the distribution hub. Uh, these then, um, these people then began using the drone to fly up to the bedroom windows of young women and film them sleeping. Said footage was being uploaded to a pay-per-view website and streamed to paying customers. You know, uh, I, I, I didn't. It didn't really come as a surprise to me that there's actually a market in this sort of thing. Uh, you know, since you know, for over a decade now on Channel Four, we've been able to watch people sleeping. It's called Big Brother. <laughs> but that being said, the yeah. Uh, the company themselves were held liable since it was their equipment that was being used and they were sent down along with the guys who set up the uh, the pay-per-view site. So no more drone couriers for now. So this podcast is brought to you by Clear Conscience. Sorry, Crystal Clear Conscience. A revolutionary new technology which could drastically affect human decision-making. Essentially... It's a pair of holographic projectors built into the shoulders of a garment of your choosing, and each unit projects an interactive hologram, right? This <laughs> awesome stuff. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's one for your good conscience, right? And another for your bad conscience. Now, people don't get these things straight away, you don't understand. Um... There, there needs to be a vetting procedure now obviously you know for legal reasons and all this sort of stuff this only entails one week of recorded interfacing just so we know that your bad conscience doesn't overpower your good and thus they could be held liable for for that um i personally think that you know this is a good idea but just think of the possibilities of that where we could have uh right there with you wherever you go access to two opposing voices of reason it's an exciting new thing i mean you know they i think some of them were talking about uh doing like you know google updates for them and you know um but yeah um <laughs> it's it's an it's an yeah it's an exciting new thing so you should make sure to get hold of yours so Go to www.crystalclearconscience.com forward slash offer and enter the code name Adam123 and uh, you'll be given the email address of a temp who can get you through the vetting process quicker, uh, but that's that. Uh, so this podcast is brought to you by my intro... 
also by my entrusted triad of sponsorship, providing the points of presentation that keeps this podcast show afloat and coming to you free every single month without fail. Uh, My triad consists of Russell Brand, Green Party MP Caroline Lucas and Sir Patrick Stewart. Uh, They have all agreed to co-fund this podcast until they can each spare at least 10 minutes on the show with me to talk about science and sustainability when applied to society. That being the ultimate fulfilment of their role and they're free to go. go, You know, their their role being filled uh, by a new contributor. So, cheers, guys. Uh, so, ladies and gents, be sure to message, tweet, email, smoke signal, whatever you got to do to thank these individuals for sponsoring this show. Uh, the more we thank them, the more, the more likely they will be to actually come on to talk to us. But anyway, enough of the jibber jabber. We're going right on to the actual topic of the podcast in hand, which is morality tales in movies and TV. Now, I will, of course, be using the term morality tale in as loose a sense as necessary. Uh, I mean, I know there's, uh, you know, the the idea of morality tales in fiction. Um, you know, that there's a specific meaning for for that term, but. Um, but since the subject matter this podcast will explore are all extremely varied and, and you know and they thus bleed into other philosophical ideas principles logical precepts but there's an overall moral or ethical question or problem that the characters are dealing with or exist within and i've chosen as many of these as i could that are relevant to the problems we face in the real world um and ideas of positive social change and as as you will tell from the films i've already reviewed on this podcast the medium of movies um is actually an interesting means of communicating ideas uh, essentially especially ethical questions you know in this respect uh, a movie that uses a morality tale in part or as a whole functions as what's known as a Gedanken experiment, or otherwise known as a thought experiment, where the necessary variables are distilled in a story to show uh, the viewer a clear view of what the situation is and what op- what the options are. Um, however, arriving at a decision based upon these variables is another story. You know that that's a, that's a question of methodology. Um, but just as an interesting addition to the podcast, I'm going to read uh, from a Cracked.com article. Uh, it was written by uh, Joe Olivetto, and uh, and for the, for those of you who who are watching on YouTube, I'll include a link uh, to the article in the video description. Uh, the article itself, if you want to look for it, is called uh, "The Five Most Insanely Misunderstood Morals of Famous Stories." So here we go. The Great Gatsby criticises decadence, inspires parties. The Great Gatsby is that 1920s American novel with hidden pictures of naked women on the cover. It's also deeply critical of the self-indulgent lifestyle of rich people with more money than scruples, like that Gatsby dude in the title. True, the story does feature quite a few parties, but Gatsby just throws them to attract a dipsy flapper girl, a relationship that doesn't end well, 
spoilers, everyone dies. Um, as a result, Gatsby's parties turn out to be empty and meaningless affairs, sometimes literally empty, like that time he turns on all the lights as though he's throwing a party but no one's there. Due to its critical tone and tragic ending, the story uh, has been called a cautionary tale of the decadent downside of the American dream. You can debate whether the big-budget Leo DiCaprio movie adaptation grasped the message of the book, but we know one group of people who absolutely didn't. The fans who missed the point. Yeah, it turns out uh, that when your story has rich people dressed fabulously in opulent surroundings drinking classy liquor, fans aren't likely to say, look at the selfishness, hypocrisy and moral vacuum, as they are to say, that party is awesome, let's do that. (laughs) For instance, rich people love throwing non-ironic Gatsby parties, unaware that invoking the name of Uh, of the novel basically amounts to admitting that the world would be a much better place without you. A few years ago, Prince Harry attended a Gatsby-themed 21st birthday party that cost $25,000 to throw. The following year, Paul McCartney threw his own expensive Gatsby uh, birthday gala, although they're Brits, so in that case we could at least understand why they'd want to dance on the courts of the American dream. Hey! (laughs) Sorry, that was my interjection. Um, (laughs) Sorry, carrying on. Uh, Meanwhile, if you dare venture into Pinterest, you'll find page after page of users collecting material for Gatsby-themed weddings. As Zachary Seawood of uh, of the Atlantic puts it, It's like throwing a Lolita-themed children's birthday party. The Gatsby craze revved up up even further before the release of the film. In addition, newspapers had to advise their readers about which which of the many Gatsby parties they should favour. And CNN, while actually conceding that the book criticised this sort of thing, offered up a guide on hosting your own Gatsby bash for babies. Uh, Atlas Shrugged fans love government bailouts, stupid laws. Uh, Most novels are easy to misinterpret one way or another, but you can't do that with Atlas Shrugged, as hard as you try. In addition to its continual, explicit, preachy monologues, it devotes 60 pages to an uninterrupted three-hour speech that lays out every bit of author Ayn Rand's philosophy, called objectivism. This urges selfishness at... Sorry, yeah, selfishness over altruism, volition over coercion, rationality over faith, and, above all, verbosity over conciseness. The fans who missed the point. If we had to list everyone who said they liked Atlas Shrugged, but then did the opposite of what the book says, we'd be here all day. But we can certainly list the most ridiculous ones. Plenty of CEOs love Atlas Shrugged. For instance, which isn't too surprising since most of the book's heroes are CEOs, yet these fans seem to forget that the book's villains are also CEOs. So when AIG's stock shot up after the government bailed them out with $85 billion and CEO Bob ben, uh, Benmosh thought 
uh, he deserved a pat on the back, he wrote, quote, But I learned in Atlas Shrugged, find your thank yous from within. <laughs> End quote. The villains in Atlas Shrugged uh, were CEOs who ruined the economy but profited from government bailouts. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Anyway, meanwhile... <laughs> Sorry, that was my interjection again, sorry. Meanwhile, uh, the book also criticises government torture and targeted killing, denounces the concept of religion, and roundly ridicules anyone who trusts feelings over scientific fact. So, of course, the book is hugely popular with the folks at Fox News. Glenn Beck recommends it, and Sean Hannity likes it so much that he lobbied his way into a cameo in the book's low-budget, low-grossing film adaptation. Wow, I've got to see that. (laughs) The same Sean Hannity that supports waterboarding, and the same Glenn Beck that thinks there's an atheist conspiracy. Hmm. Uh... (laughs) But the award for absolute worst misunderstanding of Atlas Shrugged has to go to Idaho State Senator John Goad. Goad said the book taught him personal responsibility and convinced his son to be a Republican. So when he found himself angry with some of the changes in his state graduation requirements, he introduced, largely symbolic, legislation requiring all students to read Atlas Shrugged before they graduate. Really? Wow. Um, That's right. Uh, Worried that your students are growing up believing the government has the right to coerce them into doing things? Why better have the government coerced them into reading a book about government coercion? That'll do the trick. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, moving on in the article. uh, Finding Nemo inspires kids to separate more fish from their families. Finding Nemo tells of... Uh, tells of a fish caught and put in a tank until his father Marlin finds him and they can escape back to the sea. Even a five-year-old can tell that this movie doesn't exactly paint keeping fish as mascots in a good light. Fishing is portrayed as kidnapping, a fish tank is portrayed as a prison, and the closest thing to a villain the movie has is an ugly little girl who keeps accidentally killing her pet fish by shaking them in their baggies. The fans who missed the point... So naturally, thousands of kids who love the movie responded with, let's kidnap a cute little fish and keep it in a cruel prison. And the parents, who were forced to sit through the thing ten times, did exactly that. Demand for tropical fish exploded right after the film's release, especially for clownfish and blue tang, the main character's species. And just like the evil little girl in the movie, many new pet buyers had no idea how to take care of their pets and ended up killing them. You see, saltwater tropical fish aren't fish that you can't Um, that you can just throw in a goldfish bowl. They need a 30-gallon aquarium with carefully controlled salinity levels or they'll die. But most kids stop listening to the instructions at the word salt water. The rise in demand demand, took fish importers by surprise. They first walked out of Finding Nemo worried because the moral was clearly fish should not be separated from their friends in the ocean. Uh, but audiences bought so many fish that they threatened whole sections of the reef the film celebrated. Populations of clownfish dropped by 75% in some areas. Whoa. (laughs) 
This isn't the first time something like this has happened. These fads usually crop up when a movie portrays what delightful pets the animals make, like the Dalmatians in 101 Dalmatians, which are actually aggressive, untrained beasts that get abandoned or put down. Really? Dalmatians are naturally aggressive? I would disagree with that part of the article. Um, or Harry Potter's owls. Most were dumped when it turned out they don't grant magic powers or British accents. I think that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> but Finding Nemo is different because uh, this time the whole premise of the movie was freeing the animal from being a pet. Then again, pet owners who took that premise to heart didn't respond much better. Some released their venomous fish into the ocean, ruining Florida's ecological balance. Others flushed fish down the toilet to free them. These fish died before even reaching the sewers. I'd imagine. Hopefully when Pixar makes the inevitable sequel, the message will be, kidnapping fish is awesome and you should murder them as much as possible. (laughs) But anyway, that's all I'm going to read from that article. But uh, but yeah, you can find that on crack.com. But anyway, on to my reviews. Um, when it comes to the kinds of morals Hollywood teaches us, besides the obvious good versus evil thing, is the idea that the status quo should be maintained, or at least regained if lost or threatened. You know, th- this is something that I will allude to like a bit later on with uh, one of the films that I'll review. But someone who spoke to this uh, specifically uh, was Owen Cook, uh, otherwise known as Tyler. Uh, he f- uh, he founded a uh, company called uh, Real Social Dynamics. But uh, the thing that he said is, uh, quote, Society is in many ways uh, a lot like a Hollywood movie. There is a good guy there is a bad guy, and there is an ending that reinforces social norms. There's an uplifting message, Go America, at the end. It's saying the system works. The system is good. For a little while there, we were thinking that our existing beliefs could be wrong, and those beliefs were threatened. But no, at the end, we discover that there is a good reason to have those beliefs. And there's a simplicity there. And the thing is, people like that simplicity. They don't want to think. They don't want to look at the multi-dimensions of how the world works. They don't want to have to dig in deep. They don't want to be required to have to be aware all the time. They just want to get their beliefs and then go to sleep and allow those beliefs to take care of everything. End quote. So, with with that right there, that is the power that the mainstream media has. You know? It can mould minds into thinking however it, however desired. You know, the, the stories it tells weave deep into the fabric of our culture, and it's with this in mind that I would cite some of my own uh, from these movies. So whether they're good or bad, these morals speak to our problems and, and their solutions. And the first thing that I thought of uh, when thinking, when starting to do the research for this podcast, is you know, what sort of morality do we find in horror film? In uh, film, I'm sorry, I just gave it away there with a Freudian slip. <laughs> I thought of horror films, um, in particular the slasher films from the uh, around like you know late seventies, early eighties, nineties. Um, one one in particular um, is Friday Thirteenth. Um, 
which you know in a sense friday 13th is uh you know a an overextended revenge story um but if you but there are quite a lot of uh, of other slasher films that that do this same sort of thing and essentially what it is is the killer's motivations isn't isn't in some cases uh just blind homicidal tendencies it's actually you know there's there's a codified method that the ki- that the killer is using and really it's punishment for sin because if you look at friday 13th it's all about punishment for premarital sex and drug use like in halloween um you know the 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 you know arguably the godfather of uh, of modern slasher films uh in in the original script uh, i think michael myers wasn't actually referred to by name at all he was just called uh, i think he was called the shape i think it you know just um I, this was just to imply that you know the point of his character was that he was not even a character he was more like a force and um you know and there's specific people that he kills he doesn't just kill anyone he kills specific people and uh especially within because uh, there, there's one modern film that i can think of that was specifically specifically involved with this um was uh, the christian uh motivations for murder in the uh yeah this uh, what's the name of the film? Yes, uh, See No Evil. It stars, there's a W, I think it's WWF or WWE, whatever. There's a wrestler known as Kane, and basically he plays the, the killer in that. And basically, the, you know, the, the whole idea of, uh, of Christian homicidal tendencies of, you know, punishing sin with death, uh, that is the motivation in, in that, in that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, Christian derivative values in uh, in a lot of horror films. I mean, even even in The Exorcist. I mean, if you read the book of The Exorcist, holy moly! Uh, yeah, that's that's a bit of a mindfuck. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, the, uh, the uh, there's also the idea that uh, virginity. Is a is a power greater uh, than an, even than an evil killer? You know, I mean, th- I mean, this can be summed up quite well uh, by a quote from the nineteen ninety six film Scream. Uh, it's a seri- the Scream films are a series of slasher films that you know that they were an agent and victim of uh, slasher film moral teachings. But the uh, but the quote itself goes uh, quote there are certain rules that one must abide by in order su- to successfully survive a horror movie number one you can never have sex sex equals death number two you can never drink or do drugs it's the sin factor it's a sin it's an extension of number one and number three never ever under any circumstances say I'll be right back because you won't be back so. You know that right there. That that emphasises the point that um, you know there's certain. <clears throat> I think it's because uh, you know religious uh, religious communities are largely the most uh, the most repressed uh, 
communities because of the ideological baggage that they put upon themselves and so the the kinds of uh, the kinds of imagination that uh, that someone might uh, develop um, as a countermeasure to the um, to the oppressive life that they live you know they they could weave like these fant- really intricate and fantastic stories and some of them can even uh, you know be tainted by their own religious beliefs where they you know they they earnestly believe that homosexuals are an abomination right and uh, but but yet they still want to ex- express themselves and they write you know something that uh, that demonizes gay people you know there's so many things that uh, that are influenced back and forth but uh, but yeah the if you if you notice the the idea is that um, also male characters are tend to either be victims or killers not much else um, but anyway I just thought that that was uh, a little bit interesting the you know the the morality of preserving um preserving pu- uh, preserving purity as it were is something that can save you cuz there's the killer that's going to kill you if you're impure um but anyway onto the uh, the next moral teaching is uh, is actually from the film I I know a lot of you might groan about this but I quite like the film because of this and the visual effects uh, the film after earth and it's the idea of uh, a different perspective on fear uh, there's a particular um, little monologue that the uh, that will smith's character uh, recites to his son um, who is actually jaden smith who is will smith's son so it's yeah, too convenient there for the character dynamics they didn't need to work on it <laughs> well, I suppose maybe they worked on the character or whatever. Um, but anyway, the um, the the monologue itself it goes uh, quote: "Fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity, Kitai." Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all telling ourselves a story, and that day, mine changed. So, this, um, for those of you who are familiar with uh, with the work of a man named Eckhart Tolle, you will know that this alludes to the... Uh, the you know the ideas of being in the moment uh it's otherwise known as you know being present or being in the zone or in state or whatever it's um it's essentially where the fun- the the different functions of uh, of your brain both the uh, both the reptilian brain uh and the mammalian brain uh, and also the you know the the prefrontal cortex if there's congruence through all those if if the uh i can 
can't remember the, uh, the 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 specific term for it, but essentially when um, when all of those parts of the brain are in alignment, when they're working well together and complementing each other, it's it's like there's a flow state where you're just present to the moment. Fear doesn't matter because you know that you can deal with it. You know, uh, some some people have uh, have called this the the notion of being on fire, not actually being on fire but you know when when they say yeah i'm i was on a roll you know like that sort of thing when uh like say for example when uh when sometimes when i get talking i just like get into it you know that there's a there's a groove there and um this is partly uh what they're what they're talking about but uh but coming back to the aspect of of uh of fear um it plays a lot you know if you it works also if you substitute the word fear for anxiety. Because either fear or anxiety, I think both words work pretty well. Um, really, essentially, anxiety and or fear um, and, for example, uh, disappointment. They're essentially the same emotion, but the uh, it's just one is the present tense uh, one is the pa- for the past tense and one is for the future tense you know the anxiety is a negative uh, negative emo- you know emotional state about potential uh, events in the future that as as this as the monologue says may not even happen right and disappointment is the same gen- the same general feeling but about things that have already happened and you feel bad because you know because of it but uh but yeah the uh this is actually you know in part the uh, the path to you know overcoming fear is recognizing that it's just a product of your mind right you create you create it because you I mean, as human beings, we've developed the need to quickly assess threats and quickly, uh, you know, make a decision as to what what to do. Right. So we've uh, we've had a good connection with the reptilian brain, which contain, you know, that dictates the fight or flight response. Um, but we've grown further beyond that and instead of you know but we've got, i mean we've kind of gone backwards because we have separated a lot you know between a un uh, you know we've distanced ourselves um a lot from being able to you know have the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain uh, cooperate as much as it used to you know back when there were actual legitimate physical threats around us you know back in the day but now the uh, you know the circuitry is still there and it still fires off but the threats it was developed to uh, protect us no longer exist you know we you know we don't have to you know fear getting you know torn to pieces by a mountain lion when um when you're walking down the road to tesco you know (laughs) 
but um but yeah um, we we still we still have that and we we allow fear to be a debilitating emotional uh experience when in fact i mean some of the stuff that i've been um you know absorbing from uh, some self-development audio is that uh, you know anxiety when when we feel it it causes us to not act when we feel anxious we we're less inclined to act and we're less inclined to even assess the situation properly you know because we've got an emotional uh, emotional mindset in there and uh, and it's really weird you know the uh, our brain becomes almost like you know a uh, it, it becomes a genius in terms of just manifest just generating excuses not to do something um <laughs> so therefore we uh, we don't do it when instead it should be coming up um anxiety should be used as a sort of trigger to think oh right because because the thing is when we feel anxious it's because we detect a threat to either our survival and or reproduction right that's basically what what we respond what human beings respond to is that which either negatively or positively affects our survival and or reproduction um but um and also you know the the maximizing of good feelings yeah it's it's those three survival reproductions good feelings um but fear that you know we've we've allowed it to start to debilitate us you know i mean what evolutionary function is fear if not to just alert us to threats instead of disarming you know that's what we allow it to do nowadays we allow fear to disarm us when that is the last thing we need to be doing when we're in a situation that legitimately does cause us fear you know it's it's, it's a bit like the idea of um, you know in jurassic park where uh, where they say the t-rex's eyes are ba- eyesight is based on movement sorry that that can't be true i don't think it's true i well i don't i don't know enough about uh you know um tyrannosaurus rex optical biology um but one thing i know is that generally in the animal kingdom when a animal that is considered uh, that is prey when it detect um if it thinks that it's about to be attacked by a predator what does it do it freezes so that's that's like you know uh that's like going to uh that's like going to a farm to choose a sh- a sheep to eat but the second you see one that you like it vanishes <laughs> you look at another one that vanishes <laughs> and that you can't see any of them because they keep vanishing the second you look at them that is that's you know imagine anything of value in your life that the second you look at it it vanishes that's what ha- that's what a t-rex's life w- would be like if its vision was based on movement um but anyway <laughs> um i have no idea why i brought that up so i'm just going to go back to the uh, the fear thing 
but yeah, we um, we allow fear to to disarm us when in fact it should actually cause us to spring into action. We should realise that uh, the the things we assume in our fearful states of mind that the the uh, the pictures that we create in our minds of uh, of what that uh, what would actually um, manifest is uh, coloured by what your past experience, right? Your frame of reference that you already have. Like, say, for example, when I uh, when I first uh, started megaphoning, uh, that like the very first time that I actually did it. I, I mean, I've talked about this in my documentary, um, but uh, the piddly little megaphone that I had, um, I I paced up and down for like five minutes trying to pluck up the courage to put the megaphone to my mouth. And start talking, you know. Um, and I was running through in my head, oh, but what if I get arrested? What if, some, you know, what if someone comes up and punches me? And this is the kind of frame of reference that I had for what happens when a person goes into the middle of the high street with a megaphone and starts, you know, entertaining people with information. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, it was an inaccurate uh, frame of reference. Well mostly inaccurate i mean police do did come up to me I've, I've got plenty of videos on my youtube channel that uh that explore my police encounters but um but my primary assumptions about what megaphoning would be like was nothing like what it is actually like you know i um I, and in doing so I extended my comfort zone and and this is something this is where it also you know comes into um you know the uh, the beneficial functioning of the mind of an activist if uh we can find a find a way to bring congruence with you know your your different beliefs you know holding cognitive dissonance in your mind you know it is detrimental to uh, to to brain functioning to always exist in um in dis in dissonance um because it you know the brain isn't being efficient that way it's constantly having to do something that it shouldn't shouldn't have to do there should be consolidation and reconciliation of um of different ide- ideologies in in the brain but um but anyway the um but the idea of fear though it's something that can be overcome and steps can be taken to uh, to overcome it by doing things all the time that uh, that sort of like you know stretch you a little bit because essentially imagine it as two circles one larger than the other and basically the circle one circle is inside the larger circle right the small circle that's basically your comfort zone Right, and then the larger circle, the area outside the small circle, but still inside the large circle. That's basically um, some uh, self-help people have uh, have called that the uh, the stretch zone, um, and that's the that's the area. This is when you uh, when you undertake actions that are outside of your comfort zone. Um, they're there are things that you have got information on how to do, or maybe limited information, um, 
but aren't completely familiar with and thus comfortable with but the more you venture out into that stretch zone you start br- you start bringing those activities into your comfort zone by means of your comfort zone extending out to envelop those and the more you do the more you stretch out into your comfort zone and your stretch zone goes out even further if you if you can see what i mean so you know overcoming fear can unlock that in a lot of ways and it's one thing that i've been you know trying to trying to you know come to terms with in you know in terms of my activism you know like whenever i uh whenever i went to go megaphoning you know uh, before i was able to drive i'd sit on the bus and you know my my stomach would be in knots you know i'd be really nervous you know on the on the bus ride down there it took like 40 minutes to on the bus to get there and I'm, by the, by the time i'm there i'm just like <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not that bad but but no i mean uh, i've i've covered the the idea of overcoming fear on uh, one of my uh, Adam's musings shows. Yeah, I, I, that's one thing I haven't plugged in a while. The um, uh, is it's one thing that I did for UK Collapse Radio, but I don't do the show anymore. Um, but yeah, if you if you go to um, it's on Talkshoe.com uh, as well. It's called Adam's Musings. So I've I've done a show doing overcoming fear there but i'm going to move on to um to other things now uh, another another film that has a good moral lesson is of course the people versus larry flint yeah love that film edward norton woody harrelson can't ask for a better combination um but anyway the uh, the idea it does primarily deal with first amendment issues uh first amendment for those of you who are familiar with the uh, the american constitution um that's the uh, the freedom of speech um in this country in the uk we have article 10 of the human rights act which is freedom of expression it's basically the same thing um but yeah the uh, the idea of uh, the people versus um the, the film of people larry people the bear sorry the people versus larry flint film his uh larry flint is of is as you may know a famous pornographer who uh founded uh hustler um and that's a very wholesome publication uh <laughs> but uh but no it's it's interesting how um how the film actually does uh portray woody harrelson as larry flint and also the judge um in the court scenes that sent uh that sentences him is actually larry flint himself so he played a judge like you know sentencing himself it was weird um but um but there's a particular speech in uh, in this film that really does nail down um i think the uh, the ideological struggle point of uh, of this film not that the film struggles with it but it's it points out a struggle that humanity has um particularly in uh, in christianity and that uh, you know and that's one one thing that i that i never really um i you know i i don't understand why larry flint did convert to christianity when in fact you know the the christian uh dominant imposed views of uh of 
virtue and you know against obscenity and purity and all that sort of stuff that that lay at the seed of what he was arguing against in terms of uh, of, of his civil rights issues um but yeah maybe that was some cognitive dissonance there but uh, but the speech in particular is where he uh, like goes up in um in front of a crowd and there's a there's a screen behind him that flashes in between pornographic images and images of warfare so basically when he says this or this this or this he's basically going you know to those different images um but the quote itself is quote i have a thought for you murder is illegal but you take a picture of somebody committing the act of murder and they'll put you on the cover of newsweek you might even win a pulitzer prize and yet sex is legal everyone's doing it or everyone wants to be doing it you take you take a picture of two people in the act of sex or just take a picture of a woman's naked body and they'll put you in jail now i have a message for all you good moral christian people who are complaining that breasts and vaginas are obscene hey don't complain to me complain to the manufacturer okay And although Jesus taught you not to judge, I know you're going to judge anyway, so judge sanely. Judge with your eyes open. What do you consider obscene? Is this obscene to you? Or perhaps that's obscene to you? Or maybe this is obscene to you? But what is more obscene, this or this? This or this? Sorry, it flits between the different images. Um... You know, politicians or demagogues like to say that sexually explicit material corrupts the youth of our country, and yet they lie, cheat, and start unholy wars. Look at them. They call themselves men. They're sheep in a herd. I think the real obscenity comes from raising our youth to believe that sex is bad and ugly and dirty, and yet it is heroic to go spill guts and blood in the most ghastly manner in the name of humanity. With all the taboos attached to sex, it's no wonder we have the problems we have. It's no wonder we're angry and violent and genocidal. But ask yourself the question, what is more obscene, sex or war? And that is a very, uh, very interesting point that, um, particularly with uh, with Christianity, but you know, a lot, of, a lot of other religions as well do, sort of like frown upon um, a celebration of sexuality, even though you know, because that that's the thing; it makes no sense to be down on sex especially if sex is the primary and natural mode of reproduction of the species you know (laughs) one of the last things you should ever be against or ever be uh demonizing of or ever be uh you know uh scornful of or feel is bad or wrong or dirty the last thing you want to consider in that light is the primary means by which your survival like procreates you know and survives um but that's christian religion for you um christian dogma sorry not christian religion you can get caught up in different semantic terms but anyway but yeah, the um, the idea that because uh, the thing is, the more you suppress 
a culture, the more it's going to desire that which is made forbidden. You know, when you, it's like, it's like when you tell a kid, don't touch the light socket for the 15th time. What does he do? He touches it. I mean, partly because, you know, mostly we accidentally actually prompt people to do that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's called, uh, negative suggestion. Like, like say for, um, there was a, there was an episode of, uh, I think it was Trick or Treat. It was a, it was a Darren Brown show. I'll tell you what, I am a huge fan of Darren Brown's work. If I recommend Darren's, Darren Brown's work to anyone. Um, there was, <clears throat> there was a series called Trick or Treat where essentially he got, he got a girl in a situation where she thought she was going to electrocute a kitten to death. And she actually did it. (laughs) Um, All through negative suggestion. Also, you know, um, you know, uh, calling up more associations and putting her in, in a, in a mindset that is more akin to like a childlike state. But, uh, but you know, it's if you say don't do something, then it puts it puts a subconscious tri- uh, sort of compulsion in your mind to actually do it. It's weird. But yeah, it's called neg- negative suggestion. I think it's called. Um, but yeah, the uh, the idea that. Um, the idea that celebrating sexuality, it's something that can free people up a hell of a lot more. I mean, think about it. i tell you what, if we want to get crude here, since we're talking about sex, let's just get crude here, okay? Aren't people more happy when they're getting laid on a regular basis? You know, aren't people more happy? Like, like say, for example, if... If your life needs in general were met besides your sexual needs, right? So, for example, if you're not getting laid, but everything else is okay, right? You're going to be miserable, more, or more likely to be miserable, right? But, you know, so if everything else is handled, then that's a need that is not being met. Because obviously, you know, it's, I mean, it's not, you know, it's, it's not on the ground level of basic fundamental human needs but you know it is still a human need right and um don't you think if sexuality were to be celebrated and thus not hidden all the time then don't you think people would be less inclined to try and take sex when they want it because they feel teased or that um, that there's too much uh, sexual selectivity on one side, so you know the other side has to resort to to force. Yeah, I mean th- this is why, uh, even though um, even though you know uh, woman on man rape is still a big problem, um, the I'd say the majority. In general, the majority overall of rapes are done by men. Right. So, if you if if sexuality were to be generally celebrated, and you know, 
there were less sort of uh, well, how should I, I should, how should I say it tendencies to uh, for societies to be prudish, then don't you think people would have a better way of deciding, you know, uh, who they should have sex with and when? And surely, if if we made that a, a more intelligent uh, you know, if we adopted an, an intelligent approach to that kind of thing, then sex wouldn't get out of control. Um, there wouldn't be anything... There, there wouldn't be such thing as sex crime. I don't know. Are human beings capable of that? Well, there are portions of the human population that, you know, they live in, you know, like these... Na- um, they live a, like a naturist lifestyle. lifestyle and... Um, you know, women having women having their tits out all the time, and and guess what? The men don't stare. Guess what it's called? It's called progressive desensitization, right? <laughs> and especially if you're if you, but even if you're, um, even if you're raised into that sort of thing, you don't get pro- progressively des- desensitized because that is all you've known, and. Um, yeah, because obviously sex is a natural human drive. If you put things in the way of it, then it creates an urge to push further against that boundary. You know that that's why you know if you if you ask uh, you know Joe Rogan for example, who'd say yeah, who are the dirtiest girls around? Ex-Catholic schoolgirls. Because <laughs> the thing is, he he has a point because they're more sexually repressed in general but uh but the idea in this film coming back to the film sorry um is that supposedly sex is obscene when war is not you know the act of creating life you know i mean not not just for you know the for the act of procreation but also the fact that sex is a pleasurable experience and it's it can be appreciated for its aesthetic beauty. You know, I mean I I mean obviously I'm biased because I'm heterosexual, but I find, you know, the the, fe- the average female body to be very beautiful. You know, I don't see it as something that should be covered up because it's oh it's dirty, it's sinful. You know, why? Why think that way? <laughs> I mean Surely you're denying your humanity on some huge level when you try to deny the impulses that are hardwired into you to ensure that you pass on your genes. You know, I mean, I myself, you know, I, you know, that that doesn't matter to me because I'm sterile. But you know, it matters to those who can have kids. <laughs> so. So yeah, I mean, why, why is war glorified over sex? I mean, surely, 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 the porn industry could be as lucrative as uh, as the war industry. Maybe, maybe not. But then again, in order to maintain a huge, massive porn industry the internet would have to be curtailed in a lot of in a lot of different ways when it comes to like you know the free streaming sites 
but also you'd have to make sure that a lot of people are sexually dissatisfied in their lives thus they have to resort to 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 using porn in a in you know because i mean if you want a large customer base then you've got to tap into a huge inequity of uh, of human needs <laughs> You know, you've got you've got to go to you've got to tap into a real point of human deprivation in order to get a good customer base. Sorry to reveal like immoral business practices, uh, but uh, but no, I mean, I don't know. I'd say the war the war industry is one of the biggest industries on the planet, so it does serve corporate interests for us to glorify war. To have people cheering for war, obviously. To have people cheering for sex. That'll be a cool world, actually. <laughs> Tell you what, just a just a quick intervention from a uh, from a little tidbit of knowledge from self development. When when it, when it comes to cheering, imagine your personality. If every single time that you took a crap. The whole world cheered you on for the rest of your life. But anyway, coming back to uh, the sex or war thing, um, obviously it makes more logical sense to promote um, healthy sexuality. Obviously, you know, not all porn is good. Um, there's a lot of porn that is very harmful. Um, but if done productively, I think, you know... Like, like one of the things that I, uh, um, I think I've said in, said in one of my previous podcasts, is uh, I I I think that um, that a genuine uh, a genuine pornographic film um, illustrating two consenting adults that are genuinely in love, you know, that are not fucking, they're actually making love. Um, I think that should just be used for sexual education. Just say, look. This is what a, this is what two people who love each other do. Okay, this is what you should be aiming for. This is this is the kind of treatment that you should be aiming to treat that other person that you're having sex with. All right, because if you think about it, a lot of the perversions are really distortions because a need wasn't being met somewhere. I mean, uh, I think it was Marshall uh, Marshall Rosenberg. He said that, uh, I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but um, I think all all emotional states are a result of an unmet need, or something to that effect. But um, but yeah, when when you suppress it, it gets bad, you know, and uh, you know, because... I, I think some sexual perversions are healthy as as long as you uh, as long as you have like the boundaries there but um and and have the boundaries respected but uh you know there there should be no regulation of it you know it's it's an expression between uh two or more people or one person um and as long as it isn't doing harm then why not? Whose business? Whose business is it? And it, like, it's no no one's business besides the people that, that are involved. That's it. War, on the other hand, that affects us all. 
I don't think we should be glorifying that shit. So, yeah, I agree with Larry Flint. But anyway, on with uh, the, the next one. Um, this is a film that I actually watched quite recently, and I really did appreciate for its uh, for its moral message, and that's the film Ender's Game. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't um, not familiar with this film, essentially, uh, there's a kid called Ender, and uh, you know he's basically been raised and educated in a society that's uh, surviving from. Uh, a supposed a- alien invasion uh, these aliens called the formics and uh, now they're training up kids to you know think really really fast and think really well and uh, be tacticians as it were you know to prevent um you know mankind being slaughtered or whatever and ender himself he is a true tactician um you know, the, there's there's a scene where he gets uh, cornered by a group of bullies in a classroom, and uh, he he knocks the bully down. And right there, because because the thing is, he was I I think he was in this in the situation where he, he was going to have to defend himself physically, so he was going to have to actually use physical force. Um, so he did knock the bully down, and that should be where um where the situation ends because you're down okay fight's over we've we've proven here that you know you've started to push me and then i've just knocked you down it's like right that's it we're call it quits you know draw whatever um but no he keeps kicking the kid you know because essentially the idea that this film promotes is basically a brute force um preventative idea where it's a bit like it's a bit like living down the street from a bully right and he's been bullying you for months and months so the best thing to do is to go over to the bully's house one night and kill him because otherwise how can you stop him from coming back? You know, it's it's the idea of knocking them down to prevent uh, to prevent further attacks and to ensure future victory. Right, that's the idea that this film does put forward in its initial conveyance. Um, but then there's the twist um, at the end, um, which I'll. Because obviously, as as you guys know, if I'm talking about movies, I'm going to be giving spoilers. I don't care. Um, <laughs> sorry for ruining a couple of films for you there. I haven't seen. Um, but yeah, the uh, the idea, um, largely is the uh, is the two different methodologies of dealing with the formic situation or the formics situation. Um, one of them is tactics, and the other one is ethics. Right? Now, obviously, through the main part of the program, where as he's being trained up, and they're going through like the simulations of the battles and working out how to actually do it and that sort of thing, they then go to toward um, the climax of the film. Is basically they're told you're just going to do one final simulation, and then you will be going out, uh, going out in the field 
out, out to war. And uh, they do the simulation, and the simulation is supposedly at the Formix home world. And eventually they, uh, they, they win the battle. They, they win the battle by destroying the planet, basically turning the planet into one big, sort of one big, you know, volcanic wasteland. Basically, you know what, you know what Venus looks like right now? Yeah, looks like that. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, but yeah, they, they then realise that it wasn't a simulation at all. It was actually for real. They were actually commanding real ships. And there were thousands of people on that ship that got sacrificed during the battle because, for one thing, Ender, at one point in the battle, decided to, you know, abandon the the manned ships for, you know, keeping the... Uh, Keeping the you know the drones like so like orbiting around the main ship um, as a sh- as a moving shield, and uh, basically he sacrificed those, and he didn't think twice about it. For one thing, uh, for for two main reasons. One, it was a tactical decision because you know that there was a cert- there was a certain method that he had in mind there was um there were priorities that he had to that he had to consider and thus he had to you know basically allow allow the um uh, i can't remember what the name of the when the name of the ship that he had ships that he had to sacrifice uh, dreadnoughts i think they were called and they they carried thousands of people i think hundreds of thousands of people um, but the unmanned drones, he kept those, right? Um, they they destroyed the planet, killed everyone. They realised it wasn't a simulation, and uh, and because and the thing is, they had to do that because otherwise, if they if they thought we want you to just exterminate them, because because all through the film, every now and then. Ender gives some indication to the fact that he is actually open to really you know they they haven't attacked us in like 50 years why are we taking the fight to them they're not doing anything you know why are why are we launching a preemptive attack is is it really necessary maybe there's another way to another way to settle this and as it turns out you know the formics were communicating telepathically with him you know through like a, a mind game on a like a tablet thing um and also through dreams as well so there was that deception in order to gain the victory and um and you know this is one parallel that we see in situations like executions where you know, there's uh, I think there's two keys to turn or two buttons to press, so the accountability isn't completely squarely on one one person. There's um, you know firing squads. Uh, at, I think at some point um, that uh, one of the uh, one of the guns had a had a blank round, and they were and they were each told that they um, that they could have the the blank round so they could tell themselves oh no it's not really me that's shooting him you know this is this is kind of a a same thing here um but you know 
the the difference in this case is that they can't keep the secret for long that it was ju- um, that it was actually real and not a simulation um, but it's uh, but it it's one thing because the thing is ender I think he's only like 12 or 13 years old or something he's a young kid and he's been put in the position of commanding and commanding a fleet of warships to essentially destroy you know completely neutralize an alien threat um at its home world and he realizes that you know because the 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 word that he uses uh when he realizes that that it was real uh he uses the word genocide and that's a strong word right but it's actually true because he's realized that he's just destroyed an entire race of 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 beings for no real reason besides the idea that no we should attack them first you know to prevent further further uh, further further you know incursions of violence and that that is one thing that you know it's that pig-headedness that we can see in a lot of the military industrial complex of this world that we live in right now you know there's so much block-headedness and just sheer paranoia in um you know the the notions of how we guard ourselves and how we assess the threats around us you know it it's going to take a different approach and and this this film it, it pre- presents also the compassionate approach because um because in in the mind game on his tablet and also in the dream the formics are communicating through him and they're also using the symbolism of his sister valentine now throughout the film you know, I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, is Valentine not actually a human, but maybe a formic in disguise or something? Because there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, there seems to be a lot of uh, congruence between the kind of values that uh, that Valentine uh, gives Ender and the kind of values that um that are necessary to save the formics you know and um pardon me but yeah that's the that's the idea of the film that uh, you know what what is better because the thing because as you watch it the film propagandizes you into thinking that the formics are just some enemy that needs to be exterminated you know <clears throat> i mean however there, there's one thing that does allude to a change in this is the fact that the film for the vast majority of the film we hear virtually nothing about what the formics are you know what kind of structure do they have you know how they communicate um you know we even the the only times that we see what they actually look like is right at the end and in part in the dream sequences that uh, that ender has 
So it, it tells you so little about the enemy that you sympathize the least with it because you know the least about it. You know, I mean, this is one. This is one of the things that makes villains and monsters in horror films and action films so scary. If we know l- less about them, then we can identify with them less because there's less information that is likely to be like you know relatable, and also because there, there's that unknown factor, right? When a when a film deliberately does, especially a sci-fi film, when it deliberately does that about like an alien species, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, maybe there's another side to this story that it's going to have to tell later on, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, just like with the problems that we face in this current society, you know, uh, Ender's Game finishes with a compassionate approach where Ender actually has to pay pen- pay his penance and redeem himself for killing the vast majority of its race by transporting a queen to find a brand new homeworld for them. He will find them a new home. And that in of itself, I mean... The, the, I mean, the way the film ended, it's just screaming for a sequel. Um, but uh, but yeah, I just thought I'd uh, touch on that. Where you know, compassion is really the uh, the best tool, not preemptive violence. Preemptive, you know, the the justification of the preemption itself the preemptive act is the justification the violence no i do i mean i do the, i mean the the film it sort of uses uses the preemptive the idea of a preventative means through preemption if preemption is even a word um it uses that as a fulcrum to sort of like solidify itself and yeah yeah you can't question this logic now can you because it does it does actually make logical sense if you you know if you kill someone it it will prevent them from being able to kill you but that still doesn't stop the fact that you killed someone right (laughs) violence to prevent further violence is still violence right so we need to keep that in mind but moving on, um, here's the film The Dark Knight. Now, this film, uh, it contains, thank, la- thanks largely to the Joker, um, the film does demonstrate uh, a couple of, uh, you know, moral dilemmas and, and thought experiments. The first one is uh, with the character who's just about to reveal uh, Bruce Wayne's true identity like on live TV or whatever. Um, the Joker calls in and basically says, you know, um, if this guy is not dead in 60 minutes, I will blow up a hospital. Right? Now, if you're familiar with Gedanken experiments, you will recognize this as the trolley problem. Essentially, this is because uh, there's a few variants on the trolley problem. Uh, the one I think this one is closest to is the fat man uh, version of it, uh, which goes as follows: uh, "Quote: A trolley is hurtling down a track towards five people. You are on a bridge which, 
under which it passes. You can stop it by putting something heavy in front of it. As it happens, there is a very fat man uh, next to you. Your only way to stop the trolley is to push him over the bridge and onto the track, killing him to save five, should you proceed. Now, obviously that is... uh, it's a situation that I myself... I... I mean, obviously, I know what the logical choice is, right? Overall, it's it's better to sacrifice one to save save the many. However, there's different circumstances where, you know, I would most definitely not go for that option. You know, uh, like with a lot of, lot of people, they are less likely to choose... The sacrificing the one if that one is someone that they care about. So, uh, so really, the um, the si- there needs to be situational ethics, you know, applied onto this sort of thing. Meaning that the situation needs to be considered on its own merits. And you know, and obviously, in this in this scenario, there isn't time to uh, to like consider. Hmm, how much, you know, how much value do I place on this human being versus this human being? Hmm, you know, there's no time for that sort of thing. And, but but then again, even um, even in in the uh, the Dark Knight, there's uh, there is that element th- uh, element there that you can't do anything about it. I'd say the, I mean, really, the only moral way to resolve the trolley problem is to stop the trolley with something else you know there has to i mean surely it can't be that fatalistic that there really is no other way to stop the trolley than pushing the fat man in front of it if it really is that dire then I guess that really is the situation, but you know, obviously, um, the Dark Knight does sort of um, put in a little bit of leeway in there because basically they have like sixty minutes to evacuate the hospitals. Because he said, "I'll blow up a hospital." I, I, you know, he didn't say, "I'll blow up a patient in a hospital," and I won't tell you which one. Because <laughs> that, I mean, that that is that would be that would be even scarier. Yeah, that yeah, that would be that would be a way to maintain the trolley problem in the truly unwinnable situation that it is, you know, because because with the trolley problem, you're basically faced with either killing or let um, either killing a small amount or letting a large amount die. That's basically the trolley problem, and and you've got to choose one or the other. Right, there's no leeway. Obviously, in the Dark Knight, there's the leeway that they evacuate the um, the patients. I think that the hospital that did blow. I don't know. I don't know whether the hospital that blew up um, was occupied or not. But um, but yeah, that's the uh, that's the idea, and uh, you know that that's something that you know that can. Uh, crop up sometimes uh, when it comes to you know I mean 
I, I mean, I hate to, you know, violate Godwin's law here, but, uh, but, you know, could it be argued that uh, that killing Hitler would have saved that hundreds of thousands of li- millions of lives? Could it? Could that be argued? Could the Hitler prevention problem be uh, deemed as a version of the trolley problem? I don't know. But it's something to think about. Um, another thing from The Dark Knight, um, again from The Joker, is the uh, the all part of the plan speech. And th- this is one thing that's actually become quite a famous meme um, on the internet where people, uh, they list something that... that that they list two important things one thing that society actually care, cares about and one thing that society doesn't give doesn't care about um and it's like and it's largely the uh, the thing that people most care about is the unimportant thing and that's that's one thing um that is actually uh evident to see so much when when we see the media highlighting so many things that just don't even matter and people get so twisted up by it and you know because i mean i've i've talked about this in previous episodes where you know i talk about the echo chamber that is say uh, you know the jeremy vine show where you know people you know that they encourage clueless people who aren't really uh, qualified to talk about subjects say well Here's what I think, <laughs> you know. But uh, it's it's the it it's topics like that that sort of like derail um, considerations of what we should actually be thinking about, what we should actually be prioritising on. And um, but uh, but just to just to solidify this more, the the actual uh, quote from the film itself. His, uh, he says, quote, You know what I've noticed? Nobody, pa- nobody panics when things go according to plan, even if the plan is horrifying. If tomorrow I tell the press that, like, a gangbanger will get shot, or a truckload of soldiers will be blown up, nobody panics, because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old mayor will die, well, then everyone loses their minds. All right? This is all partly because, um, well, I'd say it's mostly because there's a certain amount of violence that uh, that a culture is conditioned to just accept. You know, we accept that soldiers die in war. We accept that gangbangers get shot. But we don't accept, like, you know, singular murders that are you know, basically in our faces. You know, I mean, one of the reasons, you know, coming back to, uh, going back to horror films for just a second, the reason why uh, films like Halloween uh, were so scary was because it took horror films out of the hyper-real settings that they were in that weren't completely relatable for an audience and put in the settings in something that's extremely relatable something that you can watch and say that could be that could very well be my house that kind of does look like my house that is my house Ah! you know (laughs) something like that 
Um, that's that's why it's so scary. Um, but the the idea is that we're we're focusing on the wrong things in our in our society. We're focusing on the wrong questions. We're focusing on the wrong pieces of information. We're focus we're focusing on the wrong uh, the wrong beliefs for one thing. I mean, yes, I know that, you know, you can't choose your beliefs because um, essentially you're, you're, you're just forced by the, by the evidence. You're forced by what you're convinced by um, to believe that, you know, that's, that's the idea, you know, you, know, you don't choose your beliefs, your beliefs choose you. Um, but yeah, I mean, even though that, even though I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with the vast majority of what the Joker says, but he does make a couple of good points, and that's that's one of them. Um, another thing that happens in uh, in the Dark Knight that's a uh, bit of a moral dilemma is the uh, the two boats and two bombs. Uh, this is when um, I think when the city's on lockdown or something, and um, basically there's uh, there's two boats uh, in the in the river. One of them is full of prisoners. And the other one is just full of civilians, right? And uh, the Joker basically reveals that there's uh, there's there's a bomb on there's there's two bombs, one on each boat, and the and each boat has the trigger for you know the the detonator for the other boat's bomb, and they're given a certain time limit, and basically and basically says you know if you if you turn the switch, you will basically end them you know, but you've got to do it before before they do and you don't know whether they will be so in, um so inclined not to just go immediately boom but as we find in the uh in the example there's a particular argument that one of the characters uses and it's it's the civilian guy uh he said they had their chance now this is this is one uh, this is one argument that is used a lot in our society where uh, where we bring up the idea of um, well we, when we bring up the fact that that people suffer in prison and people um, uh, people get tortured in prisons, um, but also when it comes to the idea of you know human rights for prisoners and uh, the the main argument for people who don't want to grant equal rights to prisoners like for like for example the right to vote um is oh they had their chance they made their decisions they've you know essentially by their actions they've forfeited the comforts and pri- and uh, privileges, essentially, of a civilized society, because they have transgressed against it. But the thing is, why does that only only seem to apply within that arbitrary arbitrarily decided time limit of their sentence? Why is their human rights conditional? 
you know, why, why, why are you putting a sand timer on their human rights? You know? Um, <clears throat> but also in a lot of, in a lot of senses, uh, this is actually the attitude of the 99% held by the 1%, if you think about it. If, uh, if they hear people complaining that they're deprived or whatever, they say, well, you had, you had your chance. You know, you should have worked harder. <laughs> I'm starving. This, uh, the, this area is stru- stricken with cholera. Well, you should have worked harder. should have been more competitive. <laughs> you know, that's the ethos that our current monetary system has. It's unbelievable. But the main thing... That I want to talk about from the Dark Knight is the decision towards the end when Harvey Dent dies. Um, obviously, <clears throat> by that point, he's killed a couple of people, some of them police officers. Um, but Batman and Gordon, Commissioner Gordon, <clears throat> decide to uh, lie about it and not tell the truth that it was actually Harvey Dent that did it purely because Harvey Dent was the lead prosecutor and got, you know, hundreds of uh, organised criminals off the streets and in prison, right? So in order to maintain um, maintain Harvey Dent's reputation and thus by association also the populace, population's faith in the criminal justice system, they have to lie and say that it wasn't Dent, it was actually Batman. Because, you know, Batman himself, he, he volunteers to basically be the patsy for it. And uh, for them to basically tell everyone else that it was Batman that killed them. Now why? You know, I mean, was was the Joker's corruption of Dent really that damaging to the very fabric of Gotham society? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, the Joker was able to very success. I mean, I mean, he, the Joker himself says it better. Um, that uh, he said, "Insanity is very much like gravity. All it takes is a little push." Now, if you think about it, Dent was actually is reeling from not only having fifty, like half, literally half of his body burnt. And he's refusing pain medication. But also he's extremely grief stricken. Because his girlfriend's just got blown up. Right? And you take the Joker coming into your room dressed as a nurse. Talking to you about, you know, the um, some inherent uh, immorality of mankind. And uh, and that anarchy is fair. And, uh, and that, you know, the, you know. A destructive path in life is going to, you know, be your salvation. And obviously, he's he's going to be tipped over. Um, but it's the idea that you know uh, that Dent was the golden boy that was cleaning up Gotham streets. You know, and why why did Batman say that he can that he he should take the fall because. He is whatever Gotham needs him to be. You know, I mean, the, I mean the the quote the, the quote that he gives is that 
sometimes the truth isn't good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. What more is there than truth? You know, a lie? You know, how does that help anything? And and if Batman is supposed to be, you know, an entrusted silent protector, then how does it help for those you protect to think you're a murderer? You know, I mean, this would only really work if the truth were to eventually come out that Batman uh, to be uh, and and Batman to thus be trusted again and not boycotted, which means that the lie was unnecessary from the beginning. So just tell people the truth. You know, the justice system is criminal, and Dent uh, will stand as a testament to the idea that violence is what brings people down regardless of who they are you don't need to make our lawyers into icons because you know gotham has a big general organized and corporate crime problem and the only means we currently have against that is the the prison and justice system the one thing guaranteed to enhance the violence in that society Oh, and a mysterious Cape Vigilante who took the rap for murder because he is whatever Gotham needs him to be. Um, but, I mean, was Harvey Dent a true hero? Is the, is the moral teaching at the end of The Dark Knight really a true moral message? Why is it moral to cover over the, you know, the downfall of a lawyer you know because uh, I mean Batman called him the best of us you know obviously because he you know not just because he's taking criminals off the streets but he's doing what people should be doing anyway supposedly right I mean at Dent's funeral Gordon calls him not the hero we deserved, but the hero we needed. When he's saying that, you know, does he mean Harvey Dent the lawyer? Or does he mean Harvey Dent as in Harvey Two-Face? Because the thing is, the reason why he was called Two-Face was because that was an old nickname of his. Because, um, you know, because he... You know, he worked in. I think it was because when he worked in internal affairs, he was he was called Harvey Two Face. Um, so there was even like a little bit of a precursor to to that sort of thing. So the, I mean, there was always already a frame of reference for what sort of thing because he because he had the whole thing with a coin and everything, and he, and he was already threatening threatening people with shooting them in the head before the Joker got a hold of him you know um, no I think it, no no it was after no sorry I take that back but you know he was it was already sort of you know he was verbose you know, you know he is a verbose character and especially if you have you know a, a main character a main character that's acting in this verbose and heroic way towards, you know, the bad guys that are generally the criminals, surely, you know, that means he should be elevated up to hero status, right? Well, 
the idea that Gotham didn't deserve and need the hero it deserved and needed, that to me is absurd. You know, first of all, why are they separate issues? You know, why is you know a hero that uh, that people deserve and that they need? Why aren't they the same thing? Yeah, you know, I, I suppose it's partly to do with the unspoken assumption that you know in the film that Gotham is a cruel and unenlightened place and it only needs those who actually prop up the system itself and stand up for the criminal justice system. Yeah, I mean, that that's another point. Uh, the film assumes that the criminal justice system, as it stands, in addition to utilising a psychiatric hospital, Arkham Asylum, is the best we can do. It assumes that. It doesn't, it doesn't speak on any terms on how human violence uh, can be uh, prevented, but rather that it, it's an ongoing struggle that has to be perpetually sort of, you know, just torted out all the time, just keep going, keep going, keep fighting crime, keep fighting crime, keep fighting crime. But as, you know, as I said earlier, punishing crime just generates more. Um, but the, uh, there's, I mean, there's a interesting line that Harvey Dent actually uses. Uh, he says, uh, this is not about what I want, it's about what is fair. Yeah, because cause he, su- he suffered a loss with uh, with Rachel that died. And so he wanted to, you know, get back at those who killed him, even though he didn't get back at the Joker. Um, but anyway, carrying on with the quote. Uh, you thought we could be decent men in an indecent time, but you're wrong. The world is cruel, and the only morality in a cruel world is chance, unprejudiced, unbiased, fair. End quote. I can think of something else which isn't well. It isn't a moral system, but you can't. But it can do the same job. The scientific method. Um, but you know, Dent's comment about you know uh, decent men in an indecent time. It, I mean, it does have partial merit. You know, since uh, as human beings we grow and develop in response to and influencing society. So in, in this sense, we are a mirror of society, and society is a mirror of us. Um, you know, th- this fractal relationship, if you want to call it that, um, they, they have to change together, uh, because since both affect each other, as one changes, the other follows suit. You know, this is why positive social change will be so much easier once there is momentum, okay? It's like a snowball. It will sort of build up. So to expect people to be decent in an indecent time, well, it isn't advisable, but it's understandable how we remain victims of culture purely because we are social organisms. So, you know, the change has to has to come one way or another. And speaking of Batman movie morality... Uh, <laughs> The next film uh, in the Batman series provides an example of villain psychology with The Dark Knight, and in particular, Bane's revelations and rhetoric. And uh, just for just for posterity, I will read um, read this um, the speech itself. Quote: Behind you stands a symbol of oppression, Blackgate Prison, where a thousand men have languished under the name of this man, Harvey Dent 
who has who has been held up to you as a shining example of justice you have been supplied with a false idol to stop you from tearing down this corrupt city let me tell you the truth about harvey den from the words of gotham's police commissioner james gordon the batman didn't murder harvey den he saved my boy and took the blame for harvey's appalling crime so that i um so that i could to my shame Build a lie around this fallen idol. I praised the madman who tried to murder my own child. While I can no longer live with my lie, it is time to, uh, it is time to trust the people of Gotham with the truth, and it is time for me to resign. And to and do you accept this man's resignation? And do you accept the resignation resignation of all these liars, of all the corrupt? We take Gotham from the corrupt, the rich, the oppressors, the, of generations who kept you down with myths of opportunity, and we give it back to you, the people. Gotham is yours. None shall interfere. Do as you please. Start by storming Blackgate and free the oppressed. Step forward, those who will serve for an army. Uh, for an army will be raised. The powerful will be ripped from their decadent nests and cast out into the cold world that we know and endure. Courts will be convened, spoils will be enjoyed, blood will be shed. The police will survive as they learn to live, learn to survive, uh, to serve true justice. This great city it will endure. Gotham will survive. And one question I would have for Bane is how <laughs> now that you've torn down like you know the top echelons of uh, of control of Gotham City how is everything managed now you know i mean for for those of you who've um, but i mean i'll i'll get to that get back to that in a, in a second but for those of you who've watched batman begins you will know of the League of Shadows, who essentially function as a small army of assassins and terrorists, cleansing areas of immoral and corrupt people. Right? Kind of like the God of the Old Testament with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Bane is effectively representing the interests and mission of the League of Shadows by going back to Gotham, this time just getting rid of the rich elite instead of the original intention uh, being citywide extermination. But I suppose in that sense, you know, Bane is a step step up and makes a few more good points. Um, but, I mean, one thing that I find lacking in Bane's plan is the alternative that would prevent further corruption, you know? Since Gotham City uses the monetary system just like we do, how can Gotham ever be corruption-free? Is Bane in... Is Bane and his bandit soldiers going to change that for the better? Yeah, essentially, there is a good and evil struggle going on between two equally violent ideas in this film. Um, the status quo, you know, defended by, you know, Batman and Fox and Commissioner Gordon and all, all that good stuff. And undirected anarchy, you know, obviously driven by Bane all that lot. Now, I am very careful to qualify anarchy uh, in that way because anarchy itself is just nothing more than the idea of living without leaders. That's it. 
Um, but, you know, because if you think about it, it is the perfect approach when it comes to a variety of, uh, of situations in human life. But for the purposes of making a comic book, comic book movie, we need to make the anarchists the bad ones. <laughs> you know, sorry, we have been trying to demonise anarchists for decades now. It became cliché to, uh, to dump on punks for being against Thatcher. Uh, but whatever we, the media, show you... Uh, you know, we show you protests. We gotta show you at least a few anarchists running around in a black hoodie and a mask, scrawling a letter A on buildings, such utter scallywags they are, breaking windows, becoming supervillains and blowing up hospitals and stadiums. Oh, oh hey, wait a minute. What is the media trying to teach us? <laughs> so, you know. But uh but yeah, it's it's the it's the idea that Bane doesn't actually put anything put anything for. I mean, he does have a point, I suppose, in a sense, with the corrupt. But then again, you know, corruption. You know, the but the behaviour that we see that we label as corrupt doesn't actually qualify as corruption because corruption is something that is a detriment to the system in and of itself you know the behavior that we call corrupt does that damage the system no that sustains the system um so it's the opposite of corrupt you know the the system itself is a corruption of uh, natural systems um like say for example like take for example the uh, the natural bios biosphere on this planet you know that is a system Right, it works a certain way. Its natural laws demand certain things of us in order for us to continue to maintain our survival. And having a systems-based approach to how we manage that—that's that's one of the ways that we can actually have have a better way of living. Um, but you know, it's it's not taught in this film. <laughs> obviously because we've got to demonize something um uh, but anyway moving on um another film uh that i'll go on to and i, and I think i'll uh i'll probably you know fin finish this out soon because i have been going on for quite a while um is uh the purge films uh both the purge and the purge anarchy i'll like merge these both together because the second film does sort of carry on uh like when you watch the second film you can tell the ideas have evolved a little bit and you can see in the film the natural results that would that would occur when that sort of thing is allowed to sort of like process and go through a few times but uh, essentially the purge films are based on a faulty premise um well they are either based on a faulty premise or they are um one of the main plot points is a faulty premise. Um, but essentially it's that, uh, that human beings are inherently violent, so, uh, so that in order to cleanse ourselves and purge ourselves of these violent tendencies, we should have one night a year for, I think it's, yeah, for 12 continuous hours, all crimes are legal. 
and they, you know there's certain limitations on it where you know there's uh, there's like a certain class of weapon um you know you can use up to a certain class and you know you obviously you can't you know go use nuclear warheads um but you can you know shoot people and stuff like that and there's uh, there you know there's people who are in the highest positions uh, in government they're protected from the purge and all that, they're immune ex- exempt from the purge all that sort of stuff but uh, you have 12 hours to basically get it all out of your system and then you can go about your life and you know the film does claim to uh, i think it uh, has like a lower um, lower general crime rate but um it, it's just a complete absurd idea that uh, that somehow i mean for not just the idea that human beings are inherently violent but also that you know by doing anything we want by having no holds no holds barred no rules whatsoever for 12 hours that's somehow going to um cleanse us of our violent of our naturally violent i mean if we're naturally violent then doing a purge once a year is not going to do a damn thing about it you know um but yeah the yeah the there's also the the idea that um that the second film um expands on a little bit more is the kind of mind lock that occurs uh with people that are purging because in in the purges there's um the idea that there was like this second american revolution and there's a there's like a new constitution and everything uh sorted out and there's a new found new founding fathers and one of the rights that um that they that they granted uh, the citizens of the united states in in this film is the right to purge if they want to they don't have to but if they want to they can um and this is you know it's both a parallel of how the second amendment has been abused by certain american people who you know they basically say i yeah i was granted the second amendment by my constitution so i'm exercising my you know some people say my god-given right but my my constitutional right i'm exercising it but in the in the films in the purge films they go a little step further not just you have the right to have guns but you have the right to use those guns however the fuck you want for 12 hours a year (laughs) you know so you know the what do you think is the inevitable result of that ladies and gents you should know what the results of that would be the results of the purge is you know an ever-growing tendency of an an ever-growing degree of violence and uh, one of the things that the um that the film that the second film expands upon is how rich people purge by actually essentially purchasing people off the street you know whether they're you know chronically ill people they they basically pay a huge amount of money to the person's family to be able to take that dying person away and kill them in a sort of like ritualistic fashion because that's how they purge right 
And that's something that I can see completely understand. I can completely see that sort of thing happening. Because, you know, I mean, those are the kind of values that the rich have. They do look, they do generally look down on the poor. Not, not because, not because they they consider them with malice, but because they generally see them as an inferior species. Well, not an inferior species, but they're an inferior class, and there's certain conditioning that they have to be, they have to be given because otherwise, you know, you can't, you can't achieve. I mean, unless you, you, you inherit wealth. You can't necessarily achieve a huge amount of wealth and, and success unless you have at least, in part, bought into the ideas of capitalistic society, you know? So there's the, there's the buy-ins that the, uh, that the characters have to, to these notions that being able to kill anyone that you want, or not just being able to kill, it says all crime is legal. So, you know, and, um, I mean, I expect when I first saw all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 continuous hours, I thought to myself, right, how many rapes are going to be in this, in this film? But it doesn't focus on that. For some reason, I think it's mainly because when someone, when, when human beings encounter the idea of, you know, all crime being legal... I think for most people, I, I mean, it's certainly for me, the first thing that shot to my mind, murder. Murder legal. <laughs> you know. But, um, but yeah, it's the, uh, the film does um, start to express, and especially in the second one, there's a transformation that a character goes through. Because uh, I'm thinking of actually doing a, a review of the Purge films to you know, expand on this further, because it is a very, um, very good, uh, very well-told um, story of personal transformation. But uh, but that being said, I've gone over two hours now. Crikey, I've gone over two hours, so I really should close this out now. So, um, but, I mean, there's there's loads more films that I need to, uh, that I need to go through. There's even, oh, there's even some that I really wanted to go, go into that I'm not, that I'm not going to have time to. But I will, I'll tell you what, I'll do a round two of this, because uh, there's TV shows and stuff that, because I've mostly focused on a couple of films, but there are like, you know, some TV shows that really sort of like, you know, delve into a lot of uh, morality tales and, you know, ethical conundrums and so forth. But, you know, I will uh, close this podcast down now. So, um, so just the usual announcement for those of you listening to this on YouTube. Look on TalkShoe for it. You can find the link down in the video description. Um, the usual plug is for the Zeitgeist Movement Defined. If you want to find um, find out how to get a copy of it, either for free download for PDF or get a physical copy for a very, very small price, go to www.thezeitgeistmovement.com forward slash orientation and you will find details there. Um, but also this podcast was sponsored by... Uh, crystal clear conscience the uh, the brand new holographic technology uh, to give you a much better angle of uh, arriving at decisions so if you go to www.crystalclearconscience.com forward slash offer and enter the code name adam123 you'll get the email address of that temp who can 
rush you through the uh the vetting process um this podcast was also um brought to you by my triad of sponsorship being russell brand caroline lucas and sir patrick stewart so please by all means find a way to thank them for their support of this podcast the more of us thank them the more likely they are to come on um but uh, as for next time i will have that interview so keep your ear to the ground about that um but that's all from me i uh, thank you all for listening and i'll speak to you all another time take care Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.